It's the first Monday of the month. Your questions, our responses, and lots of resources. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 212. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made, and this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And one of the ways that we are working to do that is by responding to your questions. So once a month, the first Monday of the month, we uh, take your questions and you can send those in anytime at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And Bonnie often joins me on these episodes. And if you've uh, just started listening recently, uh, Bonnie and I uh, happen to know each other pretty well. We've been married for over a decade now. And Bonnie brings a great... We also have two children. We do also have two mm-hmm. children, yes. Uh, and we live in a home. And <laughs> probably don't need to go into a lot more detail no. than that. Um, but also, you have a great background in leadership, both on the academic side and on the business side. And you are the host and producer of Teaching in Higher Ed. And Bonnie has a great passion for helping university faculty to become better teachers. And I mention that because your show was recently featured in the premier industry publication for higher education, the Chronicle of Higher Education. And you've had a lot of people reach out to you. And it's really, it it was probably the best article I've ever seen written about a podcast. I mean, it was really well written. Uh, I've seen lots of articles on podcasts and that was, it was he just did such a great job with it. So we'll put a link into the show notes, but I thought that was really exciting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing about it. It was really an honor to have him write. He's such a gifted writer and it was really cool. Even if he had just sent it to me, it would have meant a lot to me, but it was also cool to get connected with so many more people who are passionate about teaching. And it's interesting because we have a number of people in the Coaching for Leaders audience who listen to your show, even though they're not in higher education, but they do something related to their jobs where they do have a teaching component to it and they found the show helpful or they just like listening to you, um, <laughs> which happens to. Please help them. Yeah, but I mention it because um, I know many people that are in this community also either know people or they interact with university faculty. So if you know someone who's a faculty member at a university or a friend or family member, that's a great resource for them. So definitely check it out, Teaching in Higher Ed. You can get it on iTunes or all the podcast app or wherever you're listening to this show. On And uh, speaking of this show, I think we should dive into the questions, right, Bonnie? Sounds great. We have a bunch this month. We're going to see if we can get to as many as possible. So let's uh, tackle the question from Jane first. And Jane's, Jane writes in and says, as a new migrator from China who's continuing their career uh, specifically in the IT area, in a Western country, I wonder whether you can provide some advice as to the major barriers for us migrators to moving up to a manager position. If you could provide some insights from the employer's point of view, that would be super helpful. Bonnie, I'm going to let you start on this one. I want to have a caveat in the very beginning here, which is that I'm going to be talking about a researcher's work and some of the findings that he had. But keep in mind that all of his research is relative. So he looked at originally 40 different countries and then moved on to 50 different countries in his follow-up studies at some cultural differences. But the findings are just how one country is relatively different from another country. And whenever we look at research like this, we always need to realize that we are all unique as people. 
So there, I'm going to share some of the findings and, and it might be helpful to you, but if Jane, it doesn't resonate, then recognize you might need to look elsewhere because I, I certainly don't like to overgeneralize. Hofstede is who I'm referring to. That's H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E. Geert is the first name. It might be Hofstede. Hofstede. Hmm. And he looked at the effects of a culture, a country's culture on the values of the people that lived in that country. And again, as I mentioned, started with 40 countries in his first study and went on to look at 50 in the latter research. And there he found six distinct variables that will be different among countries. You may have heard of I mean, one, one of the big differences between a place like China and a place like America is around individualism. In America, much more embracing the values of wanting to be more individualized as people. And although it's kind of funny to me as someone who teaches a lot of young people, that they want to be so individual and unique, but then somehow that pursuit has them wound up wearing the same jeans and carrying the same purses as women, et cetera. That's probably a whole nother line of research. <laughs> yes. Huh? Uh, and in, in many of our Asian countries, for example, individualism is much lower and, and not something that is valued as highly. highly. What, what may come up for you and in, in you may recognize these cultural differences is another area he looked at called power distance. And that is how formal are we about the person who's in charge? And I know when I was working with companies from the Asia Pacific region, I had to be cautious in some places that I can't just walk into a room if we're having a luncheon or a meeting of some kind and just sit down wherever it looks comfortable there's a proper order with which people sit and it goes from the least powerful toward the center of the of the table all the way up to the most powerful person's going to be sitting on the heads of the table on that am I using the right word head you, of the table yes so what it's you are. called yeah and these are things that I would never think of as an American because we tend to have lower power distance and just sit wherever you sit and if you have something that you want to say to the president of your company you walk up to the president of your company and you're having the company barbecue and you just say it. And there's, there's oftentimes a very low power distance. And, but I hesitate even to say some of these things to you, Jane, because it totally depends on your company too. And there would be completely inappropriate cultural things to just think, oh, because I'm in a Western country, I will just assume there's low power distance here. So let me just go share my ideas however I feel like it. But I do think it might be helpful for you to look at these six different areas and try to get an assessment both from your own observations as well as talking to other people in your organization and see where your natural tendencies might be different than the natural cultural tendencies that are being exhibited in your country and maybe trying to, to stretch yourself a little bit in that area. I know for myself, it can be really powerful when we can adapt our leadership style based on the culture where we are. And while I tend to be someone who is less formal, I worked for a time at a large university, the second largest employer in the area where we live, in the county where we live, and I had to really tone that down. I had to be a little bit more formal. I had to actually speak slower and actually slow myself down because I tend to be pretty driven. I like to move quickly. I like to have steps taken pretty quick toward a goal. And that wasn't something that was valued in that culture. And it was stressful for me. I won't tell you it wasn't. But ultimately, I knew if I wanted to get to a goal, I, I was actually going to 
thwart my progress if I tried to rush too fast to it. It's so funny you mentioned this because when I saw this question, I didn't know what you were going to say. Power, distance, and individualism. Individualism were the two things that came mm-hmm. into my mind too. I couldn't remember the name of the researcher. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have much to add other than to say it, like to reinforce that this is different in every organization, even though the broad brushstrokes are certainly true for companies and cultures. So take a look at the Hofstadt's model and see if that where that fits in for you, Jane, and see what you can do to adapt. And I guess the one thing I'd add uh, is I think there's probably the tendency coming from an Eastern culture in, again, broad brushstrokes here, coming into a Western company to assume more that people are just going to kind of take care of you and maybe not to speak up as much and that um, and that the, the company is going to take care of you in your career. And I think that there's much more a sense in Western cultures and particularly here in the States of you needing to advocate more for yourself too, while taking care of the company and doing a good job as an organization. So I think that's the kind of thing that at least here in America, people expect in most organizations that if you want to move up, that you're advocating for yourself to do that in the appropriate ways within your organization. So hope that's helpful for, uh, for for you, Jane, and let us know what uh, you do with it. So the next question here is from Michael. I'm going to let uh, Bonnie read this one. I'm an avid listener and enjoy the show. I'm a VP, sales director of client services, managing a remote team of 11. We have a weekly 30-minute team meeting for which we do set an agenda and we stick to it. However, I feel that most of this information can probably be communicated via email. I speak to each person at least once a day, and I schedule one-on-one meetings once per month, and wonder what your thoughts are on weekly team meetings that are not project-related. Is there any benefit to having them, or will canceling them have a negative impact? Well, thanks for the question, Michael. I ended up talking to Michael over email a bit, Bonnie, uh, back and forth, and he's already tried a few new things, so I'll share what we had discussed. I generally have a bias toward the standing meeting where there's the set agenda and the same thing is talked about or discussed at each interaction. And particularly to your point, Michael, that a lot of these things could be shared by email, or maybe you could set up a dashboard or a web page or something where people could get that information. Um, If you are going to have the meeting of being able to use that time well. So if you're getting the sense that it's not a good use of time, my sense is probably there's other people who are part of that meeting that might not feel like that's a great use of time either or may want the time to be used differently. So the caveat to this is the social and the human and the relationship aspect of it. And I say that because, um, as many of you know, I work with the Dale Carnegie organization as well. And about three years ago, we went all virtual, at least here locally, as far as our interactions. And so what we got to do for years, which was interact with each other in an office setting, all of a sudden we didn't get that interaction as much. And so when we made that change, one of the um, one of the things that the um, our our uh, president at the time did that I thought was really smart was was very intentionally said we're going to get together in person once a month, and a good chunk of that in person getting together isn't even going to have an agenda. So we would meet for about half a day once a month. And half of that half day was just social time. It was going out to lunch, just interacting. And the purpose was to just give people a chance to connect. And people really liked that and they enjoyed it. And I found that I was really looking forward to those because I didn't have a chance to do that as much as we had done previously. So I think that that social, that human, that relationship piece is really key. And if your team values that, as I know yours does, because we've talked over, over email a bit, that's a really key thing. So now to the actual content of the meeting. So the things that you could 
you could potentially do in other places, email, online, dashboard, whatever. That'd be interesting to see if there's a way to do that. One thing that we've done just with some of our meetings recently is we've tried to get beyond just the numbers and the status update and to have a dialogue at a meeting that is going to elicit more of those deeper conversations and and give us a chance to really have the um, the richer conversation that meeting in person or at least getting together live allows us to do. And so we're actually using this three-step model now, and I'll share it with you as a check-in point for our meetings when each person goes around the table. And rather than talking about numbers, we just have a handout where we do numbers. But what we talk about is these three things. We say um, We talk about what's a recent accomplishment that we've had. Um, second is a recent lesson that we've learned that other people in the organization would benefit from. And then third, where we need assistance right now. And that is, and all those things are pretty broad. Like People are, are welcome to answer them however they want. Um, and so I found that when, since we've started doing that, that the conversation is a lot richer, we're sharing best practices with each other, that the time together is really valuable. So that might, that might be helpful to you, Michael. Um, for those who are looking for a little more detail on that, I actually aired a Carnegie Coach podcast on that uh, not too long ago. And so you can go to carnegiecoach.com slash 173, and there's about a 10-minute overview of how to put that agenda together for a meeting. Bonnie, anything you'd like to add to that? The only thing I would add is to concur that get all the information out you can in terms of your data and your metrics in advance and do problem solving in that meeting. And I like Dave's suggestion of having those three questions sound great. Problem solving is almost always best done as we're collaborating and get a chance to interact with people. And we just can't do that as well over email. You also could look at perhaps lowering the frequency of it. We might be able to still get those social connections. I just can't tell, but I, I would especially focusing on your title of client services. How well are your clients being served? Are there any areas where you need significant improvement that could benefit from the kind of problem solving you might do? Yeah, great, great advice. And and actually, uh, a quick follow up. I talked to Michael over email, and and he went to his team and found out they really loved meeting on a regular <laughs> basis. And mm. so, what they're doing is actually trying this three step model to to have more mm. collaborative dialogue rather than just having the numbers reporting. So I haven't heard that's back great. yet, but hopefully he'll. Well, you let gotta us know. love when that happens. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's the interesting thing with the. Did you just whap the microphone? I did wipe, <laughs> whap the microphone. I was getting so excited about Michael having people that love the meetings that he's leading. That's yeah. So we'll see what I mean, happens. More, it. but they're meeting the same. Well, oh, I know what I was saying. So, in the virtual world, I think this becomes important, like mm-hmm. having a live interaction, even if it isn't always like a perfect interaction. Just getting the people together and getting people to hear their voices if you're in different places, good stuff to do. All right, let's go next to a question from Christina. Christina wrote in and says, My division of my company was just merged with another company a company that has a rather different business model and philosophy than the one I've been with. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to handle the various potential challenges that come along with mergers. Aside from the uncertainty of security, which I am mostly comfortable with, uh, good for you, by the way, um, it's it, it's expected that there will be some struggles with meshing into a, a company that appears to want to eliminate or change a lot of our processes. Is it good to push back and try to demonstrate why our model may be a good fit with their model, or do I just concede that the new company's way is the way? Bonnie, I'll let you uh, start, and I'll throw in a few ideas here, too. As Dave said jokingly along the way, congratulations for not having, it sounds like, too much of an issue about the uncertainty feelings. I could never do that. I am really sensitive to that. 
And I'd be panicking <laughs> so often when we have mergers, there's changes. And sometimes yeah. the fallout of that is layoffs and uh, things like we're that. We're not saying so. you should be panicking, by the way. We're just saying that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where I, our I, minds tend to go. I'm saying like I that. wish I could be more like you yeah, in this instance. Exactly. So congratulations. You don't have to deal with all the sometimes needless worry that I might go through in a similar situation. This, this is a little bit like if you were going to work for a new company, only you didn't choose to go work for the new company. It chose to come work for you or, or work, uh, have you work for it, I suppose. I would be very, very cautious to do either of the things that you suggest in any extreme fashion because you are all still new with one another. And this is a back to, there's a great book, The First 90 Days, and great leaders go in and they're curious and they are waiting to have a, have a lot of opinions be stated and just, just asking questions and looking around and making observations. It is of course different because you've been at this for a while. You've probably tried various things and have seen some things work and some things not. However, when a merger like this happens, I mean, it, there's lots of different ways mergers can take shape. It sounds like in this particular case, at least from your perception, it is a merger with which they decided to truly merge and take their best practices and have them start to have an impact there. It is the unfortunate or perhaps fortunate, and you just can't see it yet, but, but the idea is they're the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who have the power in this situation, and I wouldn't want to needlessly lose my job over speaking out of turn and not at least having an open mind that perhaps another way might work in these instances. So I wouldn't say also though, just turn into a, a, as my mama has used this expression from the Midwest, a pansy, but I mean, don't, don't um, only yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Um, there, there also can be asking questions. Would it be helpful for you to hear a little bit of the background of what we've done here, or, or is there, is this not the, a good time to do that? Gently asking questions, being very cautious as to your tone so that you do not, you're not perceived as passive aggressive, but asking questions is always a good sign. And then if somebody says, yes, actually, I would like to know that, then you can share. And if they say, no, I think a better time, you'd be like, oh, I understand. And then, and then move on from there. Yeah. And I, I would, uh, I agree with all that. And I'd add, it's it's rarely truly a merger in business. It's usually one organization has, even if the term isn't used, really acquired the other and you get a sense of really who's in charge based on who ends up being in the chief roles and what the name of the organization is afterwards. And so being conscious of that is really smart. Um, the thing that I would add to what Bonnie said is on the decision points of what you would advocate for and what things you might say, okay, I'm willing to try a different way is... Um, to look at it through two lenses. Uh, one lens is, is is this is going to be something that's going to hurt the client and ultimately affect the success of the organization? So here's an example. Um, some of you may know this. I think I may have mentioned it recently. So our Dale Carnegie office got uh, purchased by a new owner recently in the last six months. And so we've had new processes and procedures changes because we're now um, owned by a larger organization locally here. And so um, there have been a couple of things that the org the new owners decided to do differently, well-meaning, well-intended, but if we're executed the way they were suggesting, we're going to cause some issues with clients we were serving. So I think, and, and those are cases where um, me and other people were very adamant on, we need to keep the system the way the system is, because not just because we like the system, but the system serves the client, and the client, the person who's ultimately paying the bills, 
Um, we want to keep that relationship really strong, and this is what they want, and this is what their requests are. Those situations are pretty few and far between. On more things, we've been real flexible on and say, okay, well, this is you know, this is a new situation. Here's an opportunity for us to maybe think about how we might do this differently. And we've had a lot of opportunities to do that. And almost all of them have been really positive on how to rethink something. So the lens I would look through it for, uh, for you is... Um, when you're thinking about, is this something I'm going to push back on is I'm not pushing back on it because of me and my preferences. And because I'm just frustrated, I have to do something differently. If that's where you're coming from, then I think that that's probably a place to be cautious. However, if it's something where if you look at a change being made and you can foresee that this is going to cause a major issue down the road for the organization, because you have the perspective and the experience with the team that they don't have, that you help them by making, by advocating. And I think even I would go as far as say you have a responsibility to point that out and to say, hey, we shouldn't make this change because if we do, this is going to have a negative consequence down the road. And if they decide to change it anyway, they decide to change it. But you've already, at least you've said something and you've done your part to get that message out. And then the other lens I'd look at it from is also on the things that you're not going to do that with. How can this be an opportunity for you to think about how you might do something differently? And and you'll also find along the way that there will be things there that will be helpful to you in how you grow your own professional development of thinking of new systems and strategies and building new relationships with people. The other thing I was going to mention is, and I'm going to get this guy's name wrong, it's Robert Cialdani, CIA. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that. I just uh, talked about him my uh, my weekly update yesterday. Cialdini. It's not that funny that I mentioned it because I read your weekly updates oh, and that's well. what got me thinking about it. Thanks for him. reading. That's nice. <laughs> I used to be able to pronounce his name and somewhere along the line. Cialdini, I think. Yeah. Cialdini, something like that. So he wrote an amazing book and has done incredible research on influence. And he has actually changed the title of his book slightly along the way. And Dave will have it. He'll look it up and get the correct title in the show notes. It is, I know for you, Dave, it was the best book that you read in your undergrad and and he's revised it since then. And I mean, it's just phenomenal. And my sales class actually watched the video that you posted in your weekly newsletter yesterday. And this is why this is fresh on my mind. One of the principles of influence from all the research that Robert has done. Cialdini. <laughs> We're going to go with that. We should get him on the show at some point. That'd be fun. Oh my gosh. That'd be amazing. Is around consistency. And because even as Dave was describing that, I thought, no, 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 don't listen to Dave. He's wrong. <laughs> He's wrong. I, it, what part to, do you think I was wrong? Just about? in terms of it's your responsibility to speak up. And I'm thinking not if they don't want to hear it, because she could be trying to protect a client, but end up cutting off her nose to spite her face if they really don't want to hear it. So I would be trying to find ways to ask questions to gain agreement about now, is it important is this a good time to share some of the things that have come up around our clients? And just, just get a little bit of buy-in before you step out like that right. and get a sense. Because if you're in a situation where they're just coming down hard with a hammer, that's the style of leadership there. I think you need to hunker down a bit and start to go a little bit more in safety mode before we start to do that. So check out Robert's work and, and specifically, in fact, I think I, if you're subscribed to the newsletter, that 11 minute video is great. And specifically around consistency, I think you could use mm. consistency in this case to gain some real influence and then have created higher regard, higher trust, and have that chance to take those real courageous moves as Dave describes. Yeah, I'll definitely link it up in the show notes, the video. And yeah, I, I think you and I are mostly in the same place on this. Um, <laughs> it's it's the how you do it. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's it, I, I do feel strongly that, and maybe you and I disagree on this a little bit, 
if, if you foresee a major issue coming with a client, your organization is telling you to do something and they don't see it, you have a responsibility to say something and alert someone. And how you do that is really critical. But yeah, I do think you owe it to say something about that. And if they go the other way, they go the other way. Next up is a question from Danielle. I'm in the process of creating a presentation for a training that will focus on our new employee evaluation system. More specifically, one section of the training will hone in on goal setting. However, the supervisors create the goals ahead of time and ask the employees to sign off on them. My question is, how can I develop content on goal setting if the employee's goals are already set for them? If you have resources or words of wisdom that could assist me in this process, I would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, my words of wisdom are asking that same question to the people who are telling you to develop a training on teaching people about goal setting when they're already doing the goal setting. So um, I this strikes me as it is it strikes you too as odd i think because you're asking the question of if you're going to set goals for employees and they're not going to have input in it which it sounds like is a situation why would you teach people how to set the goals and go through that process themselves so maybe there's a component of just general knowledge that you want to help people to develop that skill set but it does strike me as odd to teach people a skill set that then you're not going to really allow them to use. I almost think you're better off not doing that or just giving that training to the people who are actually going to implement it and utilize it. And I guess more broadly, this makes me think of some of the situations, and we've seen this in the um, media <clears throat> over the last five or 10 years, where situations where large corporations have made missteps on major ethical violations at the senior leadership levels and then they send all the employees through um, ethics training <laughs> who had nothing to do with this. So it's almost like the employees get punished for some of the decisions that senior leadership was made uh, making. So it just doesn't sound like in very much alignment. And that kind of strikes me here too. So I guess I'd be asking, you know, asking that same question to your organization. And if it's not possible to ask that question or it's not appropriate, Maybe of thinking like, how can you maybe make that more an abbreviated piece of the training or, or uh, undertone it a little bit or just have that training be for the people who are actually doing the goal setting. So that's what strikes me, Bonnie. Jim Collins popularized the term BHAG, which is a big, hairy, audacious goal. Sometimes in organizations, there's the larger goals. We might have a, a goal for increasing our profit margins or looking at our top line and, and bumping that up. And then sometimes it can be those middle managers that need to come in and take those larger goals and, and actually break them down into how they would actually not necessarily even just be executed because that's, of course, then more on project planning. But there's the sort of in between the larger macro goal and then we need to set some goals. Well, if the profit margin is going to go up, then that's going to need to be pushed by X, Y, and Z. Within X, Y, and Z, we're going to have to say, well, what? then how would we know that we were pushing on the right lev level levers and to the metrics that we needed to in order to accomplish that larger goal? It may be, and of course, I, I think what Dave said is great. Let's ask and, and flesh out that question a little bit. But it may be more on teaching people how to take the larger goals, break them down into smaller goals. And perhaps then it, it intersects, I would hope, with some project planning project planning teams because so much of that is recognizing when we need to have in our project plan, the milestones identified and making any contingency plans at that time. There was a great book, which we've talked about before on the show called The Checklist Manifesto. And I so am still inspired by that book, thinking about one of the chapter 
chapters was on architecture and how today they're building buildings they've never built before. And how can you have the checklist for that massive construction project when it hasn't been done before? And part of it was the milestones along the way to bring together the various experts, the architects, et cetera, and just know now's the time when we need to have a conversation and look at whether or not we are on track and what's come up and just have those communication points. So those milestones, when I'm thinking about that as it relates to goal setting, that's frequently something that comes up. So again, your goal setting intersecting with project management. I love that you mentioned all that because that's that's the more nuanced way to look at this for sure. And I love the Checklist Manifesto. It's such a good book. It has It is a title that you think like, a book about checklists that's like the most boring <laughs> possible so thing you could read. And it is the most compelling, but one of the most compelling reads I've had probably in the last Atul decade. Gawande is the, is the author. And then he recently wrote one. Being Mortal, I think yeah, is his new I book. Yeah, I so need to read that. Yeah, I'd like to read it too. It, it's not related to the, to this show, per- or maybe it is. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, so yeah, Checklist Manifesto is great for those of you who are thinking about processes and procedures. And, um, and, and I did not mean to completely not offer you anything, Danielle. So here's a couple of other resources that would be helpful. Um, back on episode 15 of this show, I went through a specific checklist on how to get specific with goal setting. So if that's helpful to you, coachingforleaders.com slash 15, we'll get you there. And then also a related article I'm going to post in the show notes is what to do when employees are hesitating on long-term goals that have been set for them. So uh, check that out. <laughs> that sounds right that up your alley. Sounds right up your alley. <laughs> um, so check that out and uh, hopefully that'll be helpful to you as well. And our next question, uh, Bonnie's going to read from Marco. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. It has pretty much been the sole source of our growth of management and leadership for my brother and I, and I'm currently heading a leadership curriculum where I use your podcast as a textbook. I wanted to reach out because sometimes it's hard for me to apply the knowledge I'm learning to our businesses. It's difficult to apply several of these episodes to our managers and shift leads because our employees don't have any prior knowledge or experience in leadership or management, and our organization is small. I feel a lot of the principles you teach and examples you use are very applicable to larger businesses with degree-holding employees who are more capable before coming into work. Well, thanks for writing in, Marco. I am just truly honored that you and your brother are using the show as a textbook for a curriculum you've put together, and that is awesome. So thank you. Thank you for uh, for helping uh, us to influence more people. And oh, it's so many different ways I could go with this question. And um, I guess the, the thing I would say first is that I... I love the fact that there's such a diverse audience that listens to the show. Uh, just case in point, um, I recently talked to someone who's a, a an administrative assistant in an organization and listens to every episode of the show and utilizes it to start conversations with the people who are managing her and passes along specific episodes as resources. And I just think that that's fabulous. Um, the show isn't necessarily aimed to her, um, and yet she's utilizing and gaining so much from it for herself and her organization and just her own personal development. So I think that's fabulous. And I love that people are out there doing things like that. Uh, that said, when we surveyed the uh, the audience of the show about a year and a half ago now, one of the things we found is that people are listening. Uh, the vast majority are managers uh, in their organizations, and most of them are running small and medium-sized businesses. So there certainly are 
Uh, many people who listen to this show who are at the larger organizations, the Fortune 500 companies, but um, but the audience of the show, who the show's targeted to, is actually people just like you, Marco, and that's probably one of the reasons you're listening. And I say that because the audience is not necessarily always your employees. And the reason I say that is because there are many episodes that are aired on this show that I think would be um, applicable, if not directly, would certainly be valuable to a broader audience, but not every episode. So for example, last week I uh, had on Jeremy Kubit. Kubitschek, who talked about the five gears and just different ways to handle your productivity and communication throughout the day. That's the kind of topic I think is really valuable for just about anybody of thinking through how do I manage my interactions, think about the five different ways to do that. I think that's the kind of thing that's really appealing to a broad audience. The episode right before that where Sharon Bar-David was on and we talked about um, incivility in the workplace and trusting your canary and the things that she mentioned. Um, while I think that that's certainly a topic that's important, I think that that conversation is directed much more to a manager and a leader in an organization to think about how your organization is handling that or not handling that. I don't think that's the kind of episode that if someone just randomly picked up as an employee in an organization would be able to do as much with, although I do think every individual can do something with that, but that episode's much more directed toward a leader. So to you and your brother specifically, I would be... I would pick and choose what you present to your employees, and that's in alignment not only with your curriculum, but what broader goals you're trying to achieve. And so rather than having people say, for example, listen to every episode, I would pick the 10 or 15 or what I don't know how much time or resources you have to do what you're doing, but I would I would be real choosy about lining up the episodes with what you're trying to achieve broadly within your organization. And I think that if you do that, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck as using it in a curriculum than you would be of just broadly having people listen. I'm really curious what you think too, Bonnie, on that though. Well, I've been nudging Dave and you get so many great ideas for guests and you also come up with ideas yourself for guests. But there's a guy who was on my podcast who I hope will be on Coaching for Leaders soon, John Malisic and Malasic. I apologize, John. You taught me how to pronounce your name and now it's he's on, gone. He's on my Just list. like Robert Chiadal. <laughs> you say it. Oh, today's not my day. We need phonetic. We need phonetic spellings of these people's last names. At any rate, he he has written an article, which Dave, you should link to in the show notes for the New Republic. And it looks at the common Venn diagram about find what you love to do and find what you're good at and find a need in the world. And I'm missing one. Um, Oh, find something you can be well compensated for. Yeah. And he really breaks it down. And I don't want to spoil the, all the richness that he'll bring into the conversation when you do eventually have him on. But part of when I was reading your question, there really is a sense of our own privilege when we're able to step back and reflect on our work and 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 that sometimes his his argument is just we need to find dignity in work itself. We're having work done in our backyard right now. And it's it's a very strange thing for me to have eight or so people who are back there doing manual labor and our kids are so fascinated by it that they just sit at the window and stare at them. And it's, it's, they've been very nice I and mean, nice connections with them. I couldn't ask for nicer people to be working in our backyard. But it is this, I'm, I'm thinking so much about it today, just what it's like for someone who has a blue collar job and that's what they do all day versus what Dave and my jobs are like. So I, I couldn't tell from your 
I, I realize that this doesn't have quite as much to do with one's education, but of course that would often be correlated with, with lower level employees, lower on the pay scale, et cetera. But it, so it's, it's hard to say, cause, cause if you, if you, that was the kind of business that you ran, like the guy who leads the business that's um, working in our backyard, there's not that much you're going to be able to do. There's not many layers they're going to be able to move up and all of a sudden they're a VP, that kind of thing. But at the same time, Dave and I have very small businesses. He works for a relatively small business, especially I mean, even though he mentioned the recent merger, but still his own business. That's a it's not a completely separate entity, but for all intents and purposes, it kind of is. And I mean, I work at a pretty small organization, so it's not always the size of it. But of course, I mean, it depends on the type of work that you're doing too. All all that to say that I could see it not some of the episodes not being applicable. I think it's great that you're wise to discern that they may not all be. And please, in the future, let Dave and I know if you're looking for more resources specifically to kind of build people up and let us know what you're aiming to develop. And we might be able to be more helpful than me pontificating about the differences between our workplaces. Yeah, I'm glad you're reflecting on this. I think that's important because we want to make sure people get resources that are helpful. And then we talked about in a past episode too, just not always assuming everybody wants to move up in the world and what up means. Or who wants to learn. Mm-hmm. And so there's obviously as an organization, you need to set policies, procedures, standards for what people need to do and what standards and what things they need to learn and what skills levels they need to have. Um, and some people are going to be perfectly happy doing the minimum of that and you know, meeting, checking the boxes. And some people really are going to want to learn and to grow beyond that. And I don't think that that's, that's I don't think that's caused or maybe sometimes even correlated with them having a college degree. Um, In fact, I would, here's an example. So you all have heard on this show, me calling for applications for the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind, which is um, I'm in the process interviewing people on right now. There's nowhere in that application where I asked what someone's degree level is, and I have no idea what people's levels are unless they told me. Um, And I don't think that that is correlated to anyone's success in that group. Um, what I'm interested in is who has the right attitude, the experience, what situations are people dealing with, how do they show up in those interviews and in the conversations, um, because I've worked with people who are tremendously well-educated but aren't really willing to learn, and I know people who've never had a chance to get any formal education and are some of the best leaders I know. So I wouldn't let that piece stop you of just because people may not have the degree or the formal education Um, I, you know, both Bonnie and I are huge believers in learning whether or not the formal education piece is there. One other quick tool, as I just reread your message again, that may be of use to you in a scenario like this, it's both a training tool, but it also links right up to the work that you're in the middle of doing right now are Susan Gerke's Go Team materials. Susan Gerke has been on the show before and I have seen her materials. They're just very simple. Order some workbooks for each person, and then there's a guidebook for the person facilitating. And that could be where it just snap. It's it's they're designed to be for used with a team. So you have your shift leads, and and they might each do it with the team. It's very simple. It's written at a very simple, easy to understand, and would flex to very high in the organization to very low in the organization all around the work. And if you look at their table of contents of all their different guides, you don't have to buy all of them. You can just buy one specific for what it is you're trying to do. And boy, they have gotten the price point right, if you ask me. Yeah, it's it's great for a, a small to medium-sized business for sure. Uh, go Team Resources is where to go for that. We'll put a link in the show notes. And Susan's been on many shows and have wonderful 
wonderful comments about the episodes she's been on. So, uh, Marco, I hope that that's helpful to you. Sorry for long, uh, long <laughs> thoughts on that. But hey, speaking of which, are we going? <laughs> well, we're at forty minutes. Should we do one more? The, the next one's kind of related to this. So why don't, why don't we do one more here? Uh, so the question here is from <laughs> Ed. Ed's asks. I'm a senior manager at a charity, and my CEO and trustees have agreed to support and finance me to embark on an MBA. I'm currently researching distance learning MBAs and putting my application together. I was wondering, within your network, are you aware of people from the non uh, the non for profit sector who have studied the MBA and how relevant they found its content to their sector? I happen to have a business professor right here hmm. who who might have some thoughts on this. Bonnie. I- I absolutely think many NBAs can be applicable to people in the nonprofit sector. I would absolutely number one criteria, make sure whatever MBA you consider includes things like organizational behavior and leadership within their curriculum. There are some that are just very traditional and it's only about the finance and accounting, financial management, and you're not going to get the people side. And I would think that would be very unwise, both in the short term and in the long term for its applicability. If you are planning on staying in the nonprofit sector, you might consider finding one that has electives and that has that as a specialty for them and embedded in the curriculum. That would really allow you to maximize the value. There are many of them out there that have that. And the other thing I was going to mention, I have a former student of mine who really got a lot of value out of her MBA. And since then, she has continued that hunger for learning and has a specific certification. She happens to be a fundraising professional within the nonprofit realm. I forgot the name of the specific certification she received, but it doesn't matter. It's just within the professional world. That was the designation for her in fundraising and nonprofits. And now she has that added to her MBA to add that much more value to what she can contribute. And the other thing I'd add, and I I almost always give this advice when someone's uh, asking about graduate degrees or seeking out an an MBA, MBA is a big investment of time and resources. Uh, You're going to spend two to three years of your life really head down working on it. So um, it's worth the time to figure out what you're going to do with it and how it's going to work well. So I would spend some time also talking to other people in your field, in your industry, talk to some other people who are in similar positions or maybe in the next position up at other not-for-profit organizations and ask, you know, what have you done for your education? Uh, what kind of programs have you looked at? What kind of certifications do you have? And I think you'll probably hear what are some programs that people have done that they found have been really helpful to them. You also might hear things like, um, you know, in addition to that, or maybe instead of here's some other programs or certifications we've done that have provided maybe the same level of learning or maybe even more specific on the skills you're trying to develop. And maybe the MBA isn't as important for you, depending on what you're trying to do long term. And you might even have people tell you, you know, it's not that's not the best use of your time and resources to do other things for your professional development. There's so many more resources now online than there were even a decade ago that are beyond just the MBA. So that's something to look at as well. I think it's wonderful that they've agreed to pay for it. An MBA, despite the fact that, as Dave said, sometimes there can be a better way to spend our time and money. Boy, if someone else is bankrolling us, boy, that can be an excellent thing to add to your mix. I was going to mention that there still is a credibility issue with entirely online universities. So find a program 
that has both on-ground and online MBAs. And if you decide to take the online, that your degree will still be listed as the same name of the university as the on-ground program. That way you don't have to worry about being discriminated down the road because your degree isn't seen as valuable as a quote-unquote real MBA. I'm saying quote-unquote, I don't happen to believe that, but there certainly is enough of that belief out there that I wouldn't want it to hold you back. Thanks again to Bonnie. And if you have a addition to our list, go to coachingforleaders.com slash 212. That is where you'll find the notes for this episode as well. The next Q&A show is coming up with episode number 216, first Monday in November. So be watching for that. And if you have a comment, question, or feedback for that show, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get that question to us and for us to consider it for that show and uh, send it in advance if you can, because uh, we, we try to uh, address them as they come in. And so uh, the ones that come in the last minute, sometimes we uh, have to push for the next month. So get those questions in early if you have one already. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, it airs every Monday, uh, wherever you're listening to this, feel free to subscribe on that app or an iTunes or Stitcher, whatever is easiest for you. And finally, a reminder, if you're not already getting it, subscribe to the weekly leadership guide that comes from me by email on Wednesdays. And what that includes each week is a slightly different theme and articles, podcasts, videos, books, links to resources that I think will help support your development between the shows. And of course, it always includes the link to the weekly show notes, including this week's link, which will have all the resources, books, recommendations that Bonnie and I mentioned in the episode here today. So uh, check that out. And when you join the weekly leadership guide, you get access to my reader's guide that is a downloadable list of the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries for me on the value of each of those books. It is a great way to start your journey on reading about leadership and a great compliment to the show as well. So you can get that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and that'll get you the guide and a video where I go through all of the books on that list. And thanks in advance if you do decide to check that out. I know it will be helpful to support your development between the shows. And speaking of thanks, thank you to Michael Abi here in the States. Michael, it was great talking to you very recently. Thank you so much for the very kind review you left on iTunes about the show. And also, uh, shout out to Tiago down in Brazil. I hope I'm saying your name right, Tiago. Thanks so much. I saw the review you left on the Brazilian iTunes store as well. I so appreciate that. Hey, if you've been listening to the show for a while and you feel like you can leave a rating or review about the show, I always welcome your feedback and it helps more people to find the show and discover it. And if you use iTunes, just go to Coaching for Leaders com slash iTunes. That's a great way to leave a review there. Or if you use Stitcher, coachingforleaders.com slash Stitcher. And thanks in advance to all of you who will do that in the future. And especially thanks to all of you who have done that in the past. Have a great week. And I look forward to talking with you again in a week. Take care. <laughs>